everybody, what's up? And welcome to Tough Talk, the podcast where we talk about the tough issues facing women in STEM fields and especially women in the geosciences. So excited to be here with you recording our very first episode. I'm Liz Castle, an assistant professor at the University of Idaho in geological sciences, tenure track, pre-tenure, and I'm your host as well as really your teammate. Here's how the podcast works. We will start with just getting straight to the tough talk and uh, the tough situations. And I'll do my best to get all the information I can from our guest about her road to success and the the tough parts, the, the stumbling blocks along the way and how she dealt with that. Then we'll launch into the ring of fire in which we will call a listener and we'll hear directly from you, the audience, about issues that you're confronting and the two of us will do our best to, to talk through it and hopefully give you at least some perspective, if not a strategy to deal with that situation. Finally, we're just going to get into the next big thing and talk awesome science with our amazing science guest. All right, let's get into it. Catherine Cooper. You can call me Katie. Katie, associate professor at Washington State University, geodynamicist extraordinaire. Emphasis on extraordinaire, of course. Yeah. <laughs> extraordinaire. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks for having on me. On our pilot episode. Very excited to talk to you. <laughs> Just learn more about you. Oh, no. <laughs> and your past. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to dig into the archives. So. You have a long way to go, mold. <laughs> that is not correct, but... <laughs> I did get mistaken for an undergrad uh, three times yesterday. Wow. Kudos. High five. Uh, it was more alarming. Hmm. Oh, and then when I corrected uh, the last student that I was undergrad, she thought I was a nutrition professor, which I was like, yes, I do look fit. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I think I crushed her dreams and I told her I was a geologist. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's rough. It's okay, though. Yeah. What can you do? So why don't you tell us where you started, why you ended up going into geology, and especially as a geodynamicist, 
you know, all that math and physics, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I'm not dissing on math or physics, hey, no, but you know, uh, why, why that kind of appealed to you and, and where'd you even find out about this? How'd you start? Sure. So I, I think I'm one of the few freaks out there of there are only two things I ever wanted to be growing up. One was a ballerina and the other, um, was a scientist. Crushed it. I know. Well, the ba- the ballet thing did not work out. Mostly because I didn't take a class till college, <laughs> which is not a good gym class to take as a prereq or that you have to get through. So that didn't work out. So I knew in middle school, I was pretty solidly, I want to be a scientist. Um, and I knew I did not like things that were living because dissecting the frog was about the worst thing that I ever had to do with my life. Yeah. And my lab partners were really into breaking the bones of the frog. Ooh. And so it was really gross. And so I knew that that was not the path for me. Um, and I grew up in West Texas. And uh, the town that I was in was was not so exciting. But like within an hour drive was Big Bend National Park as mm-hmm. well as um, Marfa, Texas and then the Davis Mountains. And so my parents would uh, take us out on day trips all the time. And my dad is a really inquisitive person, and so he would, as we were driving by, he would say, I wonder how that was formed. And he uh, was taking a college course at that time, too, in geology. And so he had an interest as well. And that big question of, like, I wonder how this got to be that way really stuck with me. So he kind of inspired your, Mm -hmm. like, intuitive questioning. Yeah, and I think actually that's something that both my parents... Um, are great at it. and sometimes it would annoy the crap out of me because I was a kid but but it kind of stuck with me of like being curious yeah and not just um, not just taking things that face value value yeah. just to really wonder and be curious and so that, that was fun and then um, I will say I've always thought of you as very cat like well <laughs> you're not the only one I, I was named after a kitty <laughs> really yeah that's excellent that was my Good. great Great, great, or great grandmother's uh, name was Kitty. Nah. Yeah. But my mom didn't want me to go by Kitty. And then so she spelled my name Katie with a K. Right. Because she didn't want me to be known as Caddy with the C. <laughs> I don't know. It was a very complicated thing. So it's messed my entire life since then. Okay. okay. Good. That misspelling. Um, and so, yeah, nearby was also the McDonald's Observatory which is the University of Texas Observatory. Mm-hmm. We go to stargazing parties there a lot, which are just stunning and amazing. And and so most people probably grow up and don't see the Milky Way, but I saw the Milky Way on a regular occasion. That's cool. So I was also really attracted to planetary studies. Um, and then in middle school, I had um, at least one science teacher who had more of an earth science emphasis. And that really kind of sparked my idea. So... I would say from about 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, I knew I wanted to be a geologist. And then I had a geology course in That's high school. Early. That's exciting. I know. It's so early. Like I yeah. said, I'm kind of kind of a fluke. Uh, in high school, I had a geology class. It was, I think it was one of the few years it was offered ever there. And it was taught by uh, the volleyball coach. But he was just brilliant brilliant guy he was a lot of fun and so he knew I wanted to be a geologist and he also knew that I was really good at math as well and he's like have you ever considered geophysics interesting and I said well tell me more and so he explained to me what it is and he then said you know there's a geophysics program at 
Texas A&M, which is also where he went to school. And um, I applied to Texas A&M and Boston College because I desperately wanted to get out of Texas. And I got into both, but Boston College is pretty pricey. And I got a really nice um, set of scholarships from Texas A&M. Yeah. And that year in Texas, too, if you uh, were the valedictorian, they would pay for your, if you went to an in-state school, you'd get the entire first year free. Wow. Which is pretty remarkable. That's it's hard to walk strange. away from that kind of money. Yeah. Now, will you tell us uh, just a bit about the size of the school, that uh, your high school? Right. So I grew up in a town of around 7,000 people, mm-hmm. Fort Stockton, Texas, which is really in the middle of nowhere. You can run a marathon in any direction and not hit another town. It just tells you how remote, it, remote yeah. it is. Um and so I think in my class, there was around 150 students, which is small-ish, yeah. but not as small as my husband's, which was like 20. Right, right. Well, yeah. high five, shout out to your awesome volleyball coach slash A&M alum slash inspo. Yeah, teacher. yeah. He was like, married to the band director oh. in middle school, who I also knew really well, too. And that's the other thing. So from middle school... I, I mean, I've always really liked math, but middle school in Texas, they have these uh, math and science competitions. And so I got involved in that instead of sports. Mm-hmm. And we would travel all over West Texas doing these like competitions. And, and a lot of them are you have to be able to solve as many math questions um, as fast as you can, yeah. either with a calculator or without a calculator. And without a calculator, you have to do it on your head. You can't do anything on the paper. And so it was this weird introduction to math really quickly and so that's why he already knew I was I was into math and then in high school they also had um computer science competitions too and I started doing computer programming in middle school in seventh grade wow I know this is this is mind-blowing to me oh my gosh you're such a nerd it's so great I know (laughs) I know but I think what's, what's surprising to me is this tiny small town in the middle of nowhere yeah really put a lot into their education system and it and it shows yeah and I owe a lot to that town even though I resentfully go back there sometimes but but that town really did help me yeah yeah so in seventh grade we were doing uh, programming in basic and I blew through uh, all of the assignments and so the teacher had to like come up with some more assignments for me to do it as well as this other um, student in my class. Yeah. And the two of us were just like zooming through it. And then so then in high school, I took um, a year, no, two years of computer science as well. And by the end of it, though, I was burned out and I was like, I never, ever want to program again. And then I go to Texas A&M, um, start off as a geophysics uh, student there. There were three or four of us that started off as a geophysics major the freshman year. Um, I ended up being the only one that graduated. Wow. With the geophysics did, did the other students switch into other... Yeah, they, most of them switched into geology. Some of them, I think, switched out of their sciences completely, but I can't remember. Yeah. And it was because it was a grueling curriculum. There yeah. was no room for anything extra whatsoever in it. Um, I had the option of getting a math minor because I really just needed one more class and you needed a professional elective anyway. And I was like, well, I might as well take another math class. Yeah. 
Uh, but it was it was like doing a double major in geology and physics and then a minor in math. That's essentially how it was structured. Yeah. And I had to take another computer science class and there and I hated it. It was just not well taught. Um the the whole time the professor she put up pieces of code and she's like, Well, this might run. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and if you if you found the errors, you would get uh, extra credit. And I just don't learn that way. So it was I was a little again burnt out by that. But as I was going through the geophysics program I found myself, again, since there weren't that many undergraduate majors, I was in classes with graduate students a lot. And a lot of times it was really more, like, driven by oil industry, uh-huh. which makes sense because that school has deep ties to oil industry, and that's fine. Right. But I knew it was something that I didn't really want to do. I still did a summer internship in between um, undergrad and grad, and it was fun. It was a good learning experience. But yeah. It wasn't what was what getting me going back when I was a kid, wondering again, why is this like this? Why is the earth the way it is? Right. Did you find, though, in at least some of your classes that you were, that that was inspiring those sorts of thoughts? I mean, what was it that really drove you to stay in, ge- in geophysics if you're, you know, hating programming uh, and so yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think there were some, and, and it's funny, um, I've reconnected with one of my professors since then, and I think it was his first or second year, and uh, I took a class from him, and he is a geodynamicist, and I think it's funny to him that I ended up being a geodynamicist, just because, I don't you don't expect, like, your little undergraduate babies to end up going down that career path. And uh, in his class was, yeah, I was starting to get that kind of glimmer. And there were some other classes that I, I just really loved, but it was like gravity and magnetics, but it was just so fascinating. And I think, again, to be able to apply the math and the physics to these more Earth-based problems. Yeah. It was really when we went down like true like oil exploration or like deep seismic stuff that I was like, I am just not feeling this. Yeah. Um, so I applied... I applied to a bunch of different grad schools. Again, I really wanted to leave Texas. Um, <laughs> Good job. I know. I know. Well, this, finally, in the end. I, I finally did, eventually. <laughs> but, um, and it's not that I had anything against Texas. I just wanted to try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, it's true, moving from West Texas to College Station is pretty different. Uh, but it still didn't happen. So, on a whim, I got a tuition waiver to apply at Rice University. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why I got it. I think I got it after I took my GREs. I have no clue. Um, but they sent me tuition waiver, and I'm like, well, it's free to apply. I might as well. So the first school I heard back from, um, and then I got a personal email from my PhD advisor talking about what he did. And it was, again, these big picture questions of why is our planet the way it is mm-hmm. versus other planets. And it was like, oh, well, that's really interesting. And I'm like, well, it's very easy to go visit Rice since it's an hour and a half away from College Station. Right. Um, so I went down there, had a great visit, and I was like, this is the place for me. And and it really was. Because then I really got to delve into these bigger picture questions. So what, during your visit, do you think like made you feel the most sort of at home? What kind of sealed the deal for you as far as like, this is the place for me for the next, you know, umpteen years of my life sort right. of thing. <laughs> I think getting to have these 
these questions and like discussions with my PhD advisor. And I remember at one point, um, we were outside the bar that's on campus there because it's a private university. They have two bars. There's a graduate student bar and then there's an undergraduate bar, undergraduate bar. And I remember sitting out, they're standing outside of there in this beautiful location with live oaks all around having a conversation about the connections between music and science. And I was like, yes, this is the academic kind of experience that I want to have. Okay, so tell me about post-doc. Right. Post-doctorate and getting your current position. Okay, so from Rice, after I finished up, um, I applied to all of the various postdoc positions. I considered one in Australia, but I just wasn't ready to go quite that far away from my family. So instead, I went to uh, Carnegie Institute in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I was there at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism, which they do not do anything with terrestrial magnetism. But they, at one point, way back in the day, <laughs> they did map out the Earth's magnetic field. Okay. <laughs> Hence the name. Right. Uh, but they mostly then stuck, into, stuck with like geophysics and geochemistry, primarily. Um, Carnegie is a really great place to do a postdoc in some ways because you're a free agent. You're not tethered to any project or to any person while you're there. It's, I would say it's better as a second postdoc, which I learned um, being there. But, it, I mean, it was a great, vibrant place to be. Yeah. There's no students. It's just postdocs, and it's just the brilliant, brilliant staff members. Wow. Yeah. It was it was mind, mind-blowing. But I felt a little too untethered. I wasn't quite ready for that because I didn't do a master's. I skipped right to PhD right. and spit, got it all done in five years and zoomed through. And, um. I don't know I could have used a little bit more of adult guidance but it did also teach me to be incredibly self-reliant and eventually I was like oh hey there's this guy up in Maryland so I, I could take a train go hang out with Clint Conrad for a while and we could work on a cool project together and we did so Excellent. Fun. so really it drove you to reach out and find new mentors yeah yeah which I thought and it was it was fun it was a good experience for me and sometimes you do need to like flail a little bit to be able to realize you can't do it on your own. Yeah. And so and, I did. And I think that's a really, that's a really great point that um, I definitely might say my first year of my PhD, I didn't realize that I should flail a little bit. And it was kind of like jarring to feel the flailing. I'd never really flailed before, if you will. Yeah. And I think that I've never truly flailed, even though I thought I was flailing multiple times in my life before mm-hmm. <laughs> and not knowing what that feels like. Right. Yeah. And I remember like back in band having a total meltdown because I couldn't figure out how to play the Star Spangled Banner. And I'm like, this is something that's critical to my life. And I mean, it's not, but it's the same thing. I remember my mom was like, go, just take your time bit by bit and you'll figure it out. Right. And that's something I go back to and remind myself, again, you don't learn it all in one day. Right. And um, you don't write an entire PhD thesis in one day. Right. You don't build a career in one stock. Right. And so that, that's, that's the hard lessons you learn. So from there, I spent two years um, at Carnegie as a postdoc. And then I transitioned. There's a 
opportunity to be a program officer at National Science Foundation in the EarthScope program. And so I thought, why not take this? Um, I had been on a billion interviews for jobs at that point, but no, um, no bites really at any mm-hmm. place I wanted to be. Yeah. And so I was like, well, this is great. This is a cool experience. I'd still stay in D.C., which I completely fell in love with. And this is a completely different opportunity. And it was a rotating position, which means you can um, still work on your own research at the same time. Right. So it's a good introduction to how to ma- how do you manage your time between duties and research. Right. How many, how common is that, I guess, to find someone who, you know, when I think of program managers, I think of people who were in faculty positions for a while and then were like, oh, I'm going to try something different. Right. That's not terribly common. I think they've done it a couple times, but typically it is somebody coming from a faculty position. Mm-hmm. But they were also, I think, somebody at the last minute fell through, so they needed somebody quick, and they were excited. <laughs> to and be you like, were super oh, awesome. So that, that clearly, too. well, I remember right. extraordinaire, going, extraordinaire. And I remember going for that interview and just having good conversations. And I think they're like, oh. <laughs> Plus, at the same time, geodynamics is an incredibly like broad field and so then if you're stepping into a program that's also broad like EarthScope that is a major strength and so then you can think about things from the big picture and be able to like pipeline proposals where they should go yeah for reviewers and so I spent a year doing that I loved it I had so much fun doing the hard labor of of convening and running panels oh my gosh it was so fun really yeah because you get to read about everybody's newest and like brightest ideas, usually. Sometimes there are people that sort of just keep on rehashing old stuff, but whatever. Even then, it's still fun. Yeah. And then there's a little bit of a challenge of, well, how do I find like the people that are going to review this the best that don't have the conflicts of interest? And so then that's that's a weird, fun logic challenge for me, and I don't know why I like it. Yeah. And then you have the reviews come in, and you're like, yeah, I thought that too. Awesome. Or, wow, I did not think about that. Or, I completely disagree with this. And then you, like, put together your panel, and then you have these discussions more, and you get more insight into this. It's just so much fun. Yeah. It's a it's a nice way to, like, really quickly engross yourself in an idea. Yep. That then you, I mean, you have, like, yeah, you don't have to do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you're still connected to these things, and it's fun. It's fun to see programs that are like ideas that got funded when you were a program officer come to fruition in life. Yeah. It's so cool. That is cool. So what would you say, just sidebar advice, um, for early career-esque people, um, you know, I've done like one panel. I did it. I felt like it was a great learning experience. But, you know, some people say, oh, avoid that kind of stuff until you have tenure. Where, where do you think that sort of stuff fits in? Uh, yeah, that, that's a tricky thing. I actually would say, and like the program officers are really good about this with early career people, do it because they will not give you as large of a workload as somebody that already has tenure. So you're not going to have to read as many proposals as other people, or you won't have to be lead on as many proposals. But it's really important um, not just to see how the process works, which gives you faith in the process that it does work, but also it helps you network. Yeah. And being on a panel, and I've been on a billion panels now, it seems like, 
both as program officer, but then also as a, a panelist. I've met more people and gotten to know more people that way than I probably would have otherwise. And people outside my field, which is really important. It is a very sort of intensive, you get to talk about science with people for a while, repeatedly. And, and you I, immediately go out to lunch with them, you yeah. go out to dinner with them, because you, and then you bring your lunch back because it's a working lunch. And, you work, work, work. Right. But it really, I still, I think it's one of the most fun things. Yeah. It, it does give you a lot of insight into how other people in your broad field think, too, mm-hmm. which I think is yeah, that's, important. Yeah, which is really important. Yeah. Yeah. When writing proposals, it's nice to know what people, other people might think of that other than just yourself. <laughs> yeah, and like how ideas are converging or not converging and whether, and yeah, to see how you fit in yeah. to that is important. Okay. So now skip, okay. skip ahead. Tell me so, about Washington State University. Right. So I had interviewed, how did this all work timing wise? I interviewed in March um, at Washington State University. I remember coming down, I got a ticket on my way from the airport to Pullman. <laughs> But I was like, I'm just here for an interview. And the top cop was like, I don't really care. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. This is such a weird way to start. <laughs> um, and it was it was a little chilly. And I remember getting off the plane and being like, I thought there were trees in Washington. I'm so confused. <laughs> but it was a good interview. And, and so I, that happened in March. I hadn't heard anything, um, which is about typical. So I took the position in at uh, NSF summertime, mm-hmm. and right after I got off the um, the metro from the interview at NSF, where I agreed to like be at NSF, I got the phone call from Washington State offering me the job, and so I said, "Okay, but <laughs> <laughs> I just said yes to NSF for a year. I can't like back out of that." Right. Because that's bad juju to do that to your funding source. I agree. And so that was one of the things I had to negotiate was I will have a starting later starting date. Yeah. And now in, as you look back, have you heard why it took them so long? Because I wasn't their top pick. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Which, Mm -hmm. that's fine. Yeah. Um, That was the other thing because the position was like broadly for a geophysicist. And something that I've learned is that if you're a geodynamicist competing against a seismologist, a seismologist is going to get the job because people can understand the outcome of seismology and how that can connect to students and bring students into the game. It's a little bit harder because for some reason, students don't find doing computational modeling nearly as exciting as going out and doing seismic surveys. I know they're lost, Lame. but <laughs> I, I can understand it conceptually, even though I get really grumpy about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that that was, that was the case, but I, and I think also there was some hesitation and even though they would probably tell me no, but I don't think so. Actually, uh, I think they were worried about a young woman moving out to Eastern Washington who was uh, not married. Mm hmm. And whether or not I'd be happy and or stay, which is so not something that should ever be discussed during a right. search. What what gave you that sense? They asked if I was married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the red flag right there. I would say out of ninety percent of the interviews I've been on, I've been asked if I was I was asked if I was married. Really? Yep. That's interesting. I actually and highly illegal. It's very illegal, and it must you must be right on the cusp because 
I think I was only asked once, maybe twice. Good. So Good. hopefully people are, are kind of learning. I know. And I think... I think I was asked, some people I think were just basically clueless. I think some people were worried about, will you be a, will you have like a partner problem? And then I think some people, like if you're in a remote region, they're worried about you coming to a place single. Mm -hmm. Yep. Which it's none of their business. Right. I don't know. That's your own stuff to deal with. Yeah. And so I think there might've been a little bit of hesitation on top of that too, but I I don't know. I haven't asked anybody point blank. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, but I just, there was a feeling I got and because they kept on saying like, do you think you'd be happy in a rural region? I'm like, I grew up in a really tiny town in West Texas, (laughs) so I know how to cope. Yeah. You're like, this isn't rural. I'll show yeah, you exactly. Rural. I'm like, uh, come on. <laughs> you guys have a movie theater. We had to go an hour and a half to we'll go watch a movie when I was a kid. So yeah, <laughs> this is a step up. Yeah. And I think important worth noting that now you live not in Poland or Moscow, but in an even smaller town. Smaller town. Outside of there. So. And, yeah. And I think, I think, but also I was, I mean, I was coming in from DC. I love fashion. So I looked probably like a city girl. Right. Which is fair enough. But at the same time. I'm incredibly adaptable. And that's what I told them. I'm like, I've lived all these places I would have never envisioned myself to. And I found my community every single place. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just me. So, so then you so get then, to Washington State. Then I came to Washington State. Yeah. So, I mean, there's probably so many things that you could tell us about your time at Washington State. But I think, like, if, you know, what are sort of some of the key moments or the best stories <laughs> or sort of, <laughs> oh, no. you know, what are the uh, things that like really stick out that, you know, clearly some, uh, things have happened that have kept you at Washington state. Right. And you're, yeah. you're here, you know, you've been, how long have you been professor? This is and my ninth year. I'm starting year. my ninth yeah. year. And and I'm sure there were times along the way when maybe you were like, screw this. <laughs> <laughs> because there always are, everyone. Yeah, there, there always, always are. are. Anywhere you go. Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely the case. Um, uh, why I've stayed, I have fallen completely in love with Eastern Washington. It's beautiful. And then Washington State as a whole. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Um. I've never felt more at home in a community than I have in the place that I'm living right now. Yeah. And that's even like considering my childhood. And so that's, that's huge. Yeah. You can get that sense of home for sure. Yeah. I really like the guys that I work with and I say guys, cause they're all guys in the geology side of my department. Yeah. I think that's a really important point and, and something that's kind of like, surprising to people who work in departments young faculty i just had this experience of talking to a young male faculty who works in a department with five you know five women and six men or something and it's surprising that for some of us there are very few women in our department like for some reason some people seem to think that it's solved like, oh. the gender balance issue is yes. oh yeah that's that's all done we have no and like Bless their hearts, as we say in the South, yeah. for thinking that. Because, I mean, this, that would be great, but it's not true. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's unfortunate. I think, and I think this is just unique to, like, my own department 
is all of, for the handful of maybe one or two, all of the uh, guys in my department have had daughters. And I think they get it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even stranger, their daughters are probably closer in my age than I am to theirs. Right. (laughs) So they've all, they've been pretty supportive. That's good. Yeah. So what, what along the journey um, in, in the sort of early career days, um, what are a couple things that you're just like, man, when I learned that things got so much better. Oh, that's a hard one. I'm like, what have I learned? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing at all. Um, reaching outside your department to find mentors has been a big eye-opener for me. Yeah. And they may not um, be scientists. They may not be geologists, since, again, there's so few of us. But they are mentors regardless and friends. But you rarely have the opportunity to do that as an early um, career professor because you're so stinking busy and you're so isolated and you're so encouraged to not reach outside those like departmental walls. Right. But that was huge for me. It's helped me build um, kind of a career path and um, some leadership and positions as well as just connecting with other people that that means more to me. Yeah. So how did how did you do that? Um, well, part of it in a really weird way was one of. Um, my friends, I met through a guy that I went on one date with. He ended up marrying her. And then I stole her. <laughs> nice. She became my friend. Even yeah. though, I mean, like, we clearly stayed friends after that. We realized friendship only. Right. And um, But then, yeah, his wife is just amazing. She's wonderful. Um, then the other way is, oh, another, how did I meet how did I meet this other friend? She was a grad student, and then now she's she's graduated. Now she's moved on to, like, more amazing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I met her through yoga. Yeah. Um, so she took it upon herself to nominate me for an award. Wow. And then contacted um, some of my students, and they all put in applications for an award. And then um, another woman also just also put me in for the same award at the same time, but did not know. It was totally coincidence. Mm-hmm. And then I won the award for a woman of distinction award in the faculty area. And um, that elevated kind of my presence on campus. And so people asked me if I wanted to join various committees. And then I got to know more people that way. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what do you think it's like, how do you know, if you're on too many committees, how do you know if you should say yes to the next thing? I know. I know. You're, you should always say no. <laughs> <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Right. Um, it's hard. That's a it? hard one. I think. I think when you're when your research and the thing that you love becomes last on your list, you're on too many committees. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. How do you get out of something? Uh, that's I'm also still trying to figure out although I did say no recently um when you go on sabbatical it's a really nice way to hit the refresh button Mm -hmm. and then because you have to say no to everything when you're on sabbatical so when you come back you can be more selective about what you say yes to 
but you actually have to do that and be more selective. <laughs> and, I, and I'm working on that a little bit of like being more selective. And I think I've started to realize this is to be a little bit more selfish. Yeah. And that because normally I would say yes to being committees if I knew that was going to help students, which is great and it's fine and it's wonderful. And I love helping students like, but at the same time, it also has to help me. Right. And if being on this committee means that I'm spending too much time doing like everything else but my research, then I've, I've neglected myself. Yeah. And so now I think long and hard, will this committee um, help me and help others at the same time? Yeah. And so that, that, that's a hard one to try to figure out. Man, that's a good test, though. Something to keep in mind. It's like, and it, it's hard for me because, like, I'm always like, oh, I can just help out because that's what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm a middle child. I like to help everybody. Right. But I forget about myself. Yeah. Which is not good. And I think that that is definitely something, I mean, at least that I've read about with saying no often coming from a woman does sound suddenly it makes that woman less nice yeah and less uh and more of more of the bee <laughs> yeah more of a bee uh. and which which is is horrible to just say to you know oh well i don't see her as uh protecting her interests or managing her career i see her as just being mean Right, or not being nurturing. Right. Which is an unfair task to ask people to do. Yeah. And I think it's even more unfair when you know the person already is a very nurturing person, not because they're a woman, but because that's who they are. Right. And then you take advantage of that. And that's really unfair. Yeah. So there's there's two signs. I feel as though I'm more of a sort of... My first instinct is always to say no. See, I should always talk to you first to say, Liz, what do you think? And I will say no. So I have to force myself to do things. But then I, I definitely worry about the, the sort of repercussions coming off as too harsh. I, I know. It's so unfair because I don't think that men think about this as much. Right. Either they're like, they're. I think they're probably a little bit more binary. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't want to stereotype, but... Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too, um, oh shoot, I already forgot what it is, but I had another point. I'll find it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a, a couple minute break and then exactly. Well, um, I'm so very thirsty. So I thirsty. I need a little bit more of, uh, things in my glass cause I'm so thirsty. And then, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about tenure. Sure. Okay. Awesome. Once again, I'm Liz Castle, and this is Tough Talk. Okay, we're back. Okay. Do you want to resume that story? Yes, because I remember what it is. All right, right, swallow that cashew first. I think it's gone. <laughs> I won't choke. Oh, that would be so embarrassing. Death on podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Please Talk don't. Them. No. <laughs> first roll of the podcast, nobody dies. <laughs> well, it's not going to be that podcast. I planned wrong. Um, so the other points about committee work of when to evaluate whether to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. If you think somebody asked you to be on this committee because they know you'll get all the work done and other people aren't going to do all the work to get it done, mm-hmm. say no because you're being used. How would you know that? I think I only know that now from experience of having done said committee and realized 
this is a ridiculous amount of work. And I think I got asked back again because they knew I would get it done. Yeah. Um, and so then you should ask yourself again and like, will this, is this giving me leadership opportunity or is this an excuse for somebody to have me do the work? And that's, that's an important question to ask. Yeah. My, um, my friend, she likes to describe various academic people and it can happen anyways. Like some people are show ponies and some people are workhorses. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Ideally, you should be a combination of the boat, boat. but when people recognize you're your workhorse, they're going to keep on push, pushing you into workhorse right. positions. Okay, so tell us about tenure and you know particular sort of uh, challenges that you faced and how you dealt with them. I don't know what to share because like that's that's the thing is like it's it's hard. So my tenure process was not smooth. It was smooth up until one person. And then one person decided to not make it smooth. But it's okay, because then another person overturned it all. So Right. And I think that's the scary part, that one person can play that much of a hand in your career. Yeah. And um, that's hard. That's hard to, like, deal with. Because cause then it's like you start doubting everything that happened before that. And that's that's really unfortunate because you do have to remember nobody can take away those papers you wrote. Mm-hmm. Nobody can take away your PhD, except I guess except for the journals and you know the university. But they're not going to do that unless you committed fraud. Right. That work happened. You're the one who did it. Yeah. But to undo all of that kind of like trauma is really hard, and it took about a year of counseling, and yeah. I still. I'm like dealing with the trauma. And anytime I like sit on somebody else's like 10 year promotion case, it's like picking at the scabs. Yeah. All over again. But at the same time, something I learned is that the community, my community supports me. Yeah. My faculty around me support me. And that's a really valuable lesson to know that people do respect you as a researcher. Yeah. And I think it's, it, sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, people are... Not all people are nurturing on either Aww. side. And not all people emote their... Even their academic thoughts. You know, they're, they're in there. Everybody is kind of... We're an isolated people. And we're a, yeah. a fairly, like, you know, overall an awkward group as scientists, I think. Some more than others. Except for me. Yeah. Well, and me. Except for us. Except for us. <laughs> we are the only two. But it's true. And the entire process is so cloak and dagger. And I think unnecessarily so. Yeah. And since it is so cloak and dagger, then it just feels so mysterious and weird. And then um, since I'm at a public university, I have the right to all of my stuff. And so I read it all. Yeah. And so then I had a very um, different view than people normally would get of the whole process. And so it's nice to see, again, that within my community, I'm respected. Yeah. And wanted. Yeah. And that's important to know. Yeah. And there are political games that you don't have control over within universities. Right. So it goes. Within life, really. Within life. But especially, especially when it comes to your job, it can really... It can really... Really hurt. It can really hurt. But... Not just your job, really. Your... Your very essence. Your very essence, and exactly. I th- and, like, 
that's also like I was disappointed with myself because with a little bit about that too of like taking it so personally and moving into a stage where I've so identified and like brought into all of this into my basic identity because I remember in grad school um having these walks along the beach with uh, a fellow grad student at a different university and we're like we can do this because we we know that this isn't us at our core and I lost sight of that. Yeah. And like, that's, that's a hard thing. Mm-hmm. The other hard thing is like all those negative voices that you have in your head. Right. If somebody else actually says the things that you worry about, that hurts. Yeah. And they can find the, yeah. the niches in, in your own head. Yeah. And, and the thing that I was being criticized about is such a gendered essence too, that I'm, that I wasn't an independent person, an independent researcher. Right. And that's not fair because, good gosh, I would not be able to get to this point in my life if I wasn't independent. Right. And, and again, it's a very sexist thing to say. Yep. It does seem to be a, um, a battle you really can't win either. I no. feel like if, you know, if you had all single author papers, it'd be like, what? She can't work with anybody? And I have heard that. And I, well, actually, I also heard like when somebody was, when a woman was first author too much. And when I was a search was I, I was on the search committee and I said, that's crap. Yeah. You can't win either way. Right. <laughs> and that's just not okay. Yeah. Either you're not driving the research or you're driving the research too much. And that's stupid. Yeah. And if you want an interdisciplinary like researcher, then you have to realize you're gonna be working with other people. Or there's gonna be such like hard ingrained schools of thought that you're gonna be in that school and you will always work with those people. It's stupid. Yeah. If you published a paper, you did work. Right. Yeah. Don't negate that. Right. I got my own NSF grant as a sole PI, but that still didn't say say that I was driving my own research. And I don't know how that happens. But what's nice is I had a university president say, no, you're right. Yeah. That was not a fair assessment. And did you have to... Do something... Did that just kind of go through? Or did you have to write... I had to do the entire appeal process, which was longer than the tenure process itself. I think it, I think the total pages of the entire appeal was longer than my PhD. It was obscene. So I went through the whole process, did through the whole formal complaint. Um, that was like very ambiguous and also cloak and dagger. Yeah. Um, and then I sent a letter. Well, I had a, I had a lawyer send a letter to the university president, and then I got a letter back from the university president saying, I'm overturning that. That was not a good decision. Yeah. Thank you for telling us that, sharing that well, with the a, world. Well, it's a hard stuff because it's like this embarrassment, but it shouldn't be an it embarrassment because be. it's not actually anything on me. Right. But I still feel like it's on me. And like... It's taken me a long time to actually accept that I do have tenure because it felt like it wasn't fairly earned, even though that's stupid. Right. Because if anything, it was like even more fairly earned. Right. You double earned it. Yeah. Because you had to redo the whole thing in extra length. Yeah. To to appeal. And I th- I think it's really important too because, you know, if you don't think it's a fair decision, then... You got to fight the fight. And, right. But it's so hard when you're in that spot because all you want to do is crawl into your bed and cry. Yes. Um, even though again, I shouldn't have connected it to my very psyche. That right. was, that was, that was dumb of me. But at the same time it did, it hurts. Yep. It hurts big time. Um, 
And like, thankfully, I had an advocate and a husband who would tell me, you have to fight this. Yeah. Because I kind of just wanted to be like, fine, fine. Even though like, in my, in my department was like, you have to fight this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I had a lot of allies. Everybody was like, you have to fight this. I, I think that's really fantastic, you know, uh, especially to have all the colleagues in the department say, no, 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 this is this Well, is the BS. faculty meeting when it got announced to them, which I wasn't at, um, people were very upset. <laughs> yeah. Like, deeply upset. Yeah. Near tears. And rightly so. Yeah. Okay. So, now we're going to do some scenarios. Okay. Just, you know, give us your first response of, you know, what would you do sort of thing, right? No. We'll put you in the that better be hot good seat. It's better very be good. hot. Very hot seat here. You're talking to a senior colleague, so I guess some someone in the full professor ranks uh, about one of his graduate students, uh, and you're on that graduate student's committee, and so you're sharing some thoughts with uh, that student's advisor uh, on a recent thesis draft, right? Scientific, talk, talk, talk. You look up from the paper, and you notice that the colleague is... Staring at your chest. Oh, no. <laughs> what do you do? Oh, And clearly no. not. I mean, I think the main point is staring at your chest, staring at your legs, whatever. Clearly not really paying attention to what you're saying, which is important stuff about his student. Okay. So a couple of things. Um, some people have a tick and won't look you in the eye. And then they accidentally look at your boobs. It happens. So you have to give them a little bit of grain of salt of like, are they being creepy or is this, is this a social awkwardness? Right. Um, if you move, sometimes they'll change where they're looking. So that's a very simple, like subtle cue. Or if you cross your arms, that is another way to kind of be, like knock them out of their whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, and you're like, well, I'll get back to you on this and say, I've got another meeting to go to and just walk away. Yeah. But it's awkward. It's happened multiple times. All levels of all people. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, like, I'm not particularly well endowed, but... <laughs> <laughs> so it goes. <laughs> so it goes. But, yeah, I mean, I, but I do think it is it is helpful to remember that maybe they don't know they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Also, they could be very deeply shy and looking at you in the eye is creepy. Yeah. I don't know. What would you do? Yeah, I, I I like the idea of just kind of stepping out. I don't, you know, if it was something that continued to happen and continued to happen, that's where I don't know exactly how I would deal with it. I have found that sort of, okay, I need to exit this situation for right now because apparently you don't have the focus on and if this continues, we're going to have to do things by email. I mean, that's... It's tricky. I am also the... Not a bad idea. Yeah. I'm also the kind of person who sometimes does start to look off into space. I naturally do that and look behind people's shoulders and they kind of turn around because I have developed a thing where when I'm talking and I'm thinking and talking, I kind of look off into space as if like someone's going to take a photo of me thinking and talking. <laughs> I should look like I'm, like I'm thinking. So, so studious looking right now. <laughs> 
and that's a hard thing. But like at the same time, I don't want to discredit if like sometimes you are getting ogled and it's gross. Right. And that's definitely happened to me before. And I'm like, oh my gosh, not only was I getting ogled, I was kind of trapped because I was sitting down and this guy was leaning over me supposedly right. looking at files, but oh, it was not the case. Yeah. Um, and I felt so horribly awkward and trapped, but I tried to wrap the conversation up and move myself out. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do to confront. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I think you do have to say, like, I feel uncomfortable just the two one-on-one. Yeah. So if we want to talk about this, then let's invite one. your student or let's invite the rest of the committee. Um, yeah. Because we should all participate in this discussion. And if you're uncomfortable with just being direct, maybe you just have to sort of weave it into... You know, I think I, I would be more comfortable with the entire committee talking about this. And that's that's fine because then you displaced it all. Right. I don't know. That's a hard one. Yeah. Good scenario. But, it is. Or a bad scenario, but Bad question, but good question. Okay. You're in a faculty meeting and you and another junior colleague uh, and some maybe you're pre-tenure at this point, uh, you're sharing ideas for big changes in undergrad curriculum. Right? And people have really kind of identified the early career as the official term, right? Oh, yeah. As people who should have a hand in shaping the curriculum. And so this makes sense. You like the idea of that. Right. Um, and so you want to make a big change. And you're, you're standing firm on this case during a discussion, but it's a very sort of just back and forth discussion. Certainly some of the more senior faculty are kind of maybe a little bit set in the ways that things have been done, the reasons for things. Yeah. <laughs> and no <laughs> and so the the meeting kind of concludes with, as you're walking back to your office, uh, a senior faculty member pulls you aside and suggests that mm, you don't just you just don't really understand the students here yet. You know, you just are not quite getting it and you know honestly your tone during the meeting is really not helping your case oh no the dreaded tone (laughs) so how how would you respond in the moment and then on a broader sense how do you respond as you move forward because the to you and your junior let's just assume male colleague have both put up this case you've thought about it you've talked about it and you think it's an important change. Oh, that's hard. This is a hard thing is getting change to happen when people are resistant to change. Yep. Even though, and I think it's really important to see from both sides of the story. And so what I would do in that situation and be like, well, could you tell me a little bit more about the students here and why you think that this is something that they would be resistant for? To try to get where they're coming from. Right. Because clearly they have some sort of deep connection. Otherwise, they wouldn't be pushing back like that. Right. I would just take the tone thing and be like, great assault. This person's frustrated and annoyed. I'm going to try hard not to take this personally and not lose sleep over it. Yeah. Instead, I'm going to ignore it and think strategically about how to get the change I want to do. And strategically is like to have those conversations one-on-one and say, please tell me more about what it is that you think the students need And so then once you then listen to it more, they're going to be a little bit, I think, 
probably a little bit more open mm-hmm. because you're listening and you're not, they aren't feeling intimidated that you just want to come in and smash over everything that they've worked so hard for. But getting people to realize just because you tried something in the past that didn't work doesn't mean that you can't try it again is hard. Yeah. Really, really, really hard. And sometimes it is, is just now is the time and now is the time that you can make these changes. But people are so unwilling to make those chances again. Yeah. So I, I think, I think having those conversations and turning it around of like, please, what, how can you help me understand? Yeah. Becomes less defensive. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you can like hear the knowledge that they're going to give you and see if you can spin it to move your agenda forward. Yeah. So to not, not abandon or give up the idea, no. but to try to incorporate some of this knowledge yeah you know even if it's from someone who just bugs you just really gets your goat with that tone business they still have been faculty there they must know something right exactly so i mean that's the thing is is you don't want to like then put up these barriers where you never have these conversations yeah then you never move forward right then nothing will ever get changed. But if you can start having these conversations and say, I value you and your input, mm-hmm. then they may turn around and say, maybe your idea could work. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's good. That's very good. Um, if, per se, the, the sort of tone or, you know, the dreaded, like, smile more sort of thing I came back it. up, I, I mean, that. what... what what do you do with that? If that becomes a, a separate issue that is repeated. Oh, man. That's a tricky one. Because, I mean, I've been told that because I am a very smiley person. So when I'm not smiling, people get really, like, freaked out. Yeah. And I think if it gets to be that point, if people are like, you should smile more and say, I don't have to. I have more than one emotion. And if you can say it kindly and kind of jokingly, yeah, and it puts a little bit of edge of, like, this is being combative. But at the same time, people need to realize that it is an unfair expectation. Yeah. Um, if it gets to be a point where you're uncomfortable, then you you can go ahead and like record saying that people are making your workplace uncomfortable because they aren't accepting that you have valid emotions rather than happy. Right. And I think that's that's something that you had mentioned to me a while ago that uh, became has helped me out, I guess, in, uh, as I've moved forward in my career is that when you come out of, you know, either confrontational things or you come out of important meetings where you're unsure of how things went down or you, you don't know what to do next, that you write it down. You Jim Comey that up. And <laughs> you walk out of that meeting and you and you write it down. Write you it down. take notes about what has happened and you try to be, you know, look at it from all perspectives, but you know, at least remind yourself and have that record of, of what happened so that, you know, the next year when you're like what? That person said what? You can go back and be like, no, that's not how I understood it. At least. Yeah. I didn't... I'm not just forgetting. I either missed... There was a miscommunication or it wasn't said clearly enough to me because that's not how this went. And I think that that is an important and a good tip and it's kind of a pain, but 
you know, as soon as you get back, just, just, just jot something jot it down. Out. Yeah, put yeah. it, just write it in a notebook. And sometimes also, like, writing it down helps you exercise it out of you. Yeah. It's no longer, it's no longer there. Okay, I have a, a one just specially for you. And this oh, is man. actually a question called up from uh, a friend of mine who uh, polled all her um, graduate student group women. <laughs> and one of them said, can I add a joke question? And the question is, quote, how does one go about finding a super smart, awesome man to marry who also wants to be a stay-at-home dad? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, at least for you, how does one go about oh finding a super smart, awesome man to marry in a uh, rural town? And you don't have to tell us too many details, but I think, like, I, you know, your story is so genuine of kind of coming here single, maybe even getting like some, you know, side eyes, like, is she even going to stick around? And then ending up just you know, know. having I, a beautiful, I, wonderful romance. I met my love of my life out here. Who knew? Um, but as my friends will attest, I dated a lot of losers before that. And, and like, even if they were losers, they were lovable losers. So I will give myself that. Um... It's hard. I think you have to thing you have to remember is you deserve a really smart dude. Now, one that will be a stay-at-home dad. I don't know. That's really hard to figure out too. Right. Because typically, really smart dudes also want to have their own career paths. Right. Not that you can't do both. Um, but but I think the most important thing is to come back to you deserve somebody you can have those really awesome conversations with, and that took a long time for me, and it took my friends. Repeatedly saying, Katie, and I, I told him, you're a snob, you're a snob, you're a snob. But they're like, you need to date somebody at your intellectual level. And I was yeah. like, you guys are just so snobbish. Until I dated somebody who I could have these real conversations with. And I was like, oh. Oh. Okay. Sidebar, also a brilliant scientist. Yeah, he's so a brilliant. Nerds. Nerds love nerds. Who we do. <laughs> we do. And like. You know, and, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to be a snob too. I still like resentful about that. But I realized that it was less about like me having the connection with them, but almost the reverse because I had several guys saying, I thought I wanted to date a smart woman, but I actually don't, which is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you're busy all the time. Yep. And, you know, you have your own drive, and you can out-argument somebody who's <laughs> business if you need to, if they're pissing you off. Yeah. And and maybe they don't like that. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was one of these, like, karma things, even though I don't really believe in it. But, you know, yeah, I saw him play on a stage because he also plays guitar and sings. Of course he does. Of course he does. <laughs> and I'm like, I must have him. <laughs> While I was on a date with somebody else. Nice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So it was a long-term plan. I was like, no, he will be mine. This will happen. And um, I I knew briefly that he was from the town that we live, and I had already fallen fell in love in the town. And I was like, oh, this is even better. Yeah. <laughs> so I asked my friends who lived there, I'm like, tell me everything. And they're like, oh, he's actually a scientist here. I'm like, oh, my gosh, even better. <laughs> and... Um, so I like stalked him a little bit, but mostly I was like, I have to meet him. So how do I find a way to meet him? And I happened to be performing. The town is weird and has its entire haunted days. Right. And so I agreed to be a thriller dancer. I'm not a very good dancer. 
we'll just go ahead and put that out there. And you were supposed to dress up like zombies, and I don't really like face makeup. I think it's disgusting. Yeah. So I was a cat zombie. Completely agree See? with the face mask. It's gross. Thing. It's gross. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. I just refuse. Mm-hmm. So I was a cat. Zombie. Yeah. They must exist. Sure. Why not? I know. Um, and then, so I asked my friend, I was like, okay, well, how do I meet him? She's like, well, he's working in one of the houses as a creepy clown. Lots of face makeup. <laughs> Tons of face makeup. <laughs> We're not going to be able to make out tonight. <laughs> well, we still didn't even get to make out that night because, um, we were supposed to go for like the after party and then he didn't show because he's got a kid. Right. So he went home. Um, he was not married. I should put that out there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then I was like, fine, I'm just not destined to meet this guy. I've tried. But, so. Anyway. Long story short is. Long story short. You gotta keep dating then. I did. And he was dressed like a creepy clown when we finally got to talk all night. Oh, really? Yeah, because it was at a Halloween party. (laughs) And I cornered him. And we talked for like about four hours that night. Wow. Mm -hmm. Great. But I was like, and I told him, I was like, I'm not going to kiss you because you're wearing face paint right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it all worked out in the end. You got, I'm sure he got to kiss you later. (laughs) No, we still have not kissed and we've been married for almost three years. (laughs) So, yeah. And I think that I would say the, the sort of one of the nice tidbits or, or things to pull out of that story is even in you know, a very small place or a rural place or a place where you feel like maybe you've seen everyone and you know everyone, you... You don't. You don't. You don't. And you have to keep kind of putting yourself out there. And that's and that's in, right, that's in academia, that's in life in general. It's in life, right? in, it's totally in life in general. And, um, but... You really do need to say, I deserve somebody yeah. who I can have these deep, meaningful conversations with, yep. who will respect my career, who won't resent me for being a smart, driven woman. Right. I think, I think you need to find that in a number of places in your life. Yeah. Like you need to be with a person who feels that way. You gotta have a friend group. You need to have friends who feel that way. You gotta have colleagues. And you gotta have colleagues who feel that way. You gotta, yeah. you know, if you're constantly hiding from or in fear of all of your colleagues you should not you, you need to find somewhere else or in the reverse it's so great if you put yourself out there and then you find colleagues who end up becoming like great friends yeah too and i think yeah. that there's you're they're basically handing you a bunch of potential friends on a platter Especially, at least for, in my scenario, I was lucky enough to kind of be hired in between other hires. That's and that important. is like, you gotta, you gotta just stalk those people. You gotta stalk those people. <laughs> Whereas I was like, the first hire in a really long time. Right. And then there was not very many hires after me. So then I was kind of like, out there. But you know what? I made friends. Yeah. I figured it out. But, I, but you're right. You have to, you have to remind yourself regularly that you are worth all of this yeah so this is a good time for us to call a listener so welcome to the ring of fire oh my gosh that's terrifying isn't that great okay so we're gonna call louise all right we're calling her on the phone old technology old school stuff hello hello 
Louise. Hello. Hello, Louise. This is Liz, and I'm here with Katie Cooper, Associate Professor Extraordinaire at Extraordinaire. Washington State. <laughs> Great to talk to you, though. Yeah, so do you want to just briefly tell us um, what type, what style of institution you're at and where you are in your career? Um, yes, absolutely. So I am uh, an assistant professor. I'm in my second year, and I am at an R2 that wants to be an R1. Okay. Okay. Has about... 13,000 students. Okay. So does the university want to be R1 or you want to be R1? The university wants to be R1. I'm like pretty happy about R2. <laughs> Got it. Nice. Got it. <laughs> so what, uh, what is your, your question that perhaps we could offer some advice or some personal experiences to? All right. First, question. I'm in a really male-dominant profession. I'm a wildlife biologist, and it is, uh, believe it or not, a really big girl boys club. Lots of hunting and fishing guys. I know all these guys. I work with them. I got to have a whole conversation about where to find elk the other day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so this might be um, interesting to know, Louise, uh, is the makeup of Katie's school. Yeah, I'm in a I'm in the School of the Environment, which is a collection of geologists, environmental science, and wildlife biologists, ecologists, however you want to frame them. Oh, interesting! Everyone in one big happy family. Yeah, um, <laughs> there was a sideways glance. Actually, with that. <laughs> actually, we actually do get along pretty well. It took some growing pains, but we are we are a family now. Such a good question for Katie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, yeah, that that's that's tough. Because so I'm also in a very male-dominated field. I like took three male-dominated fields and put them all together and decided that was gonna be my field. So I do uh, geodynamics, which is a combination of geology, physics, and computer science, essentially. So yeah, there you go. Um, So sometimes I am like the only woman in the room. And I also spent a summer working at a, a gas refinery plant, which was also, again, then with non-academic people and then being one of the few women. Um, 
I kind of, and this is so horrible, but I bring out my charm when I'm that case. I'm like really charming. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of gross, but kind of not, but like, and, and not in a, not in a bad way, but I just, I'm like, I'm charming. I'm like, I'm going to be your friend. We're going to talk this out. Let's, let's just talk. And yeah. I, I think that's, that's a way of like, it's a self-defense mechanism a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's not always fun. Yeah. But. Yeah, I end up making a lot of jokes as a coping Yes. Mechanism. Yes. I make jokes and, um. And the other thing, too, is, like, even if you're not necessarily a hunter or a fisher yourself, you can always ask, like, well, how's the season going? Or the, if you know what seasons are upcoming. Yeah. Well, I literally if, learned to deer hunt just so I could drop that in there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so then it gives you, like, a common, like, even playing ground of, like, oh, and they'd be like, man, I really like elk. Elk is one of my favorite meats to eat. There's things. Oh, nice. That's a good tip. Things like that. Flavors of game meat. Yeah, elk is actually really delicious. Yeah, I agree. It It is is delicious. It is. I don't even have to lie. It's perfect. Yeah, and so then you just have this, like, when they start talking about, because I really was, I was like, how did I find myself in this conversation just yesterday of the best ways to hunt elk? Well, my mouth is now watering, so thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, I know. I'm thinking of these, like, amazing elk tacos I've had. Oh, man. Okay, let's not get too distracted. We don't get too too distracted. But I I do think of, like, bringing it to, like, even playing grounds, but even not that, but, like, saying, oh, what are your interests kind of thing puts people at ease, and maybe then there's a little bit about that. But also, like, if you can, like, throw down that you really know your shit pretty early, that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 I like that. And I don't think... Uh, you know, I don't think like being a trying to make a normal human connection is something that is like it's not bad. It's not a bad thing, and it's not something that only women have to do. No, you know, I've I've seen and interacted with men who are, who are also very charming, who also put on the charm mm-hmm. when they're interacting, especially with like you know you're trying to go from science to, to agencies to agencies or or you're working with people who just have a different sort of background i think the charm aspect i used to know a texan whose accent would thicken yeah on cue on cue whenever he was talking to someone who he needed you know he needed a little something out of or he was trying to sort of connect with them yeah. the accent came out and and it you know I would look at it and be like, oh, it's kind of fakey. But he was trying to, he was using it as yeah. a way to establish a connection. And I yeah. think that that does happen. You do have to do that with everybody. I yeah. do, it's tough in sort of like meetings when there's an agenda and an issue comes up and you have an opinion and it may not be the opinion of everyone else. I think, you know, you can't charm your way out of that. Oh, you have not seen my turn. <laughs> but I do think you have to state your opinion. You, you have, have to, you to do, go for you it. You do, but, but at the same time, like, yeah. Yeah, I've had to, be, I'm still trying to work on finding that balance of being assertive yet charming at the same time, which feels like maybe harder to do as a woman, but um, working on it. Uh, well, so this 
Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. And um, uh, let me just interject one other thing that I, a little piece of advice on the assertiveness front is you don't, you don't want to err too far on the shy or charming or not, not stating your opinions side. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I've heard from people, you know, after being on say 10 year committees and whatnot, that, um, it was, uh, it's kind of a red flag on the other side. If you never state an opinion, if you never speak up for yourself, that, you know, it, it is a tightrope. You don't want to be tight a pushover. Right. But the thing is, is I, I feel like in that situation, like, you wouldn't be in that room if they didn't need something from you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, those are all good points. I just, yeah, maybe it's a uniquely tight, tightrope. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. For, for the ladies. But oh, yeah. I'm certainly getting better at walking it than I and I, I appreciate the um, the tips and also just validating some of the strategies I've taken that they don't make me a bad person. So that's great. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> it is all about it's all about finding a way. And if that you get tired of that way of doing things, you try new things. But if it's working, you know, sometimes it's just if you're happy, stick with it. especially if you have students that come on campus visiting, if you connect them to the centers that are already existent on campus, which I'm sure there are, yeah, then they can start having those connections. I think there are. <laughs> um, I know, I, mean, I know about some, yeah, some resources and some organizations that would be good for them to know about. But, um, yeah, I just want to be, I don't want to pretend that everything's perfect either, you know, just... Yeah. Uh, Are there like websites that you could point them to and say that give like kind of a little synopsis of the area without you having to be like warning you're coming to super non-diverse land? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that they're probably already aware of it to some extent if they're yeah. coming on campus to interview with me. You know, it's not like. Google doesn't tell them the answer already. To some extent, exactly. Right. So I think they probably already know 
unfortunately. Um, helping them find their home within that place's heart and find their community, I think is the important thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Without, with, and, but realizing that you can only be an ally and what that looks like is the tricky part yeah. to it too. Yeah. I and think I, that my department's, you know, grad student community certainly is, has some elements of diversity and is very welcoming. I think, I really think they are, they do a really good job of yeah. incorporating other grad students and postdocs into their community and they all do things together and that's really nice to at least be able to offer that up. The other thing too is like, not only pointing to the students to those offices, go talk to those offices and say, what do you have, like, what suggestions? Or do research yourself, because you also don't want to, like, completely ask them to do all their work for you, because that's also not being a good ally. Um, but if the more that you can do to research of, like, what do I do? Because the problem is you're also asking two other white women. Yeah. And, and, and we probably don't have the right answers. Right. I definitely yeah, don't. I was just thinking maybe <laughs> but the, but the, the internet has a I lot of answers. I feel wildly unprepared out of my gut, which is, you know, uh, I think also I, classic. Yeah, I know. I know. It's 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 not easy. Yeah. Um, no, they don't they don't train you for this stuff really in grad school. So I know. Right? No, grad school is not training for the majority of the job description. I, my university is going through these growing pains as we speak. Yeah, and it's it's been hard, and the students are pushing back, and I'm so proud of them for doing it. Yeah, and saying we want we want more, we yeah. expect more. That's great to hear. Um. But again, you've got to find a way to be an ally that's that's a, being a true ally and not not imposing your perspe- own perspective right. on it. And yeah. That, that's, that's hard, and I have, I have not figured that out no. myself. And I think, I mean, certainly with, you know, trying to recruit any graduate student, it's only fair that they spend time with the other graduate students, with your graduate students. And if, you know, that can be getting them into a community or if it's them finding out they, this isn't their bag. I mean, you, I, I think your instinct to be honest is correct because you're doing everyone a disservice if, you know, it's only going to make more trouble for you if they're unhappy and, and. It's true, but you also don't want to make those assumptions that they'll automatically be unhappy because there's nobody there like them. Oh, no. Yeah. Not at all. So what I think... I'm I just think, saying, like, get them out into yeah. the world with the grad students yeah, see what their life would important. be like. I think that's important. The other thing... Yeah, to, that's a good point. To I mean, think yeah, about... More honest than trying to give them an honest preview of what their social life is going to be like if they might hang out with. Right. Right. The other thing that you could think about, too, is... Um, Doing a blanket so where you're not asking or making any kind of ideas of like once once the offer's there or you say come out and visit, give a list of websites of here are all the campus resources for various groups on campus that's like a wide breadth. Mm-hmm. And so this this can conclude all kinds of things. And so then the student can figure out like, oh, well, this is really what the university is like. This is what they have to offer. This is what's going on. Right. Here are the stats. 
Not even, no, not even just... Because that's also less awkward than me just giving them resources that are related to this one aspect of who they yeah, are. Yeah, because, like, then you're making assumptions because what if you don't know? And, like, what if you mm-hmm. misjudge? Yeah. Like, and, and then that's just awkward. But, like, having... If you, like, have, like, a one sheet of, like, having all the cool offices that are on campus that are Ooh, on there... I like that. You send it to all students all the time. Yep. Then they know. Yes. Right. I and, think that is so great. That really resonates. Yeah. And I, and that's, a, I think, a great strategy for a lot of things with yeah. students. You know, the sort of idea like, here are my expectations for you as a graduate student. And you have a document that goes to every student. You're not making an assumption that this student should will already know this because I think that this student, because yeah. I think this student already knows it. Yeah. You know, having sort of general things that you continue to tell or give to everyone can cover a lot of sort of bases. And that's something you could work with your department on because that's something the department should be providing too. It's like, welcome to this university. Here's all of the offices that are uh, that are available for students. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because grad yeah, students I'm don't get that. Pretty on it and pretty aware of just I think student issues in in general, but also including diversity issues. And so I think she'd probably be pretty supportive of that. Yeah, I think I think that is a genius idea that I just had. <laughs> Thanks, guys. As per usual. Uh, yeah. But it's something I was like, oh, we should also be doing this. Yeah, we should definitely be doing this. But you should definitely be doing this also. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that 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 would have been smart to do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there may be, I think this is another thing that um, I have been learning over the past few years, is there may be someone on campus who already has it together. Oh, yeah. Who already has the list. Who already wants to print out for copies for you who you know it's part of their job description and I I think sometimes you know early on I thought oh I can't believe I have to do this myself and this myself and this and then I realized oh no the there yeah. are people on campus yeah. to do things right we brought high school interns into our lab this summer oh, nice. and there's there's someone on campus that already to has help it. us with yeah. that to help with the recruiting and whatnot. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm having family calling. I'm like, uh oh. Okay. Uh oh. We we have been we have been chatting for a while. I know. So talk to the graduate school because they they may be the people that have that list already in place. Right. And just say I would like to send this out when I have like contact with the graduate students because I want them to all people See, everywhere to be welcome. Time in a lone wolf mentality. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's classic. I am also the same way. Yeah, and especially, right, like, you can assume, okay, you know about your research and that stuff, but all this other stuff, it's not your job to know about that. There's but, probably, no, it's your yeah. job to become aware, but there's probably yeah. someone who it's their primary job to know about that or to yeah. care about that. Or, Literally is their job. Right. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Go look in the graduate school because that's my guess is probably your first step. And if they don't have it, work with somebody to put together that list within your department because I'm guessing that that it would be something that everybody would love. Yeah. I think you're right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for for calling and sharing your questions with us, Louise. 
and we wish you the best of luck and um yeah let us know how it goes i mean i'm probably not gonna have time to call you guys again until i get tenure but, uh, <laughs> no thank you so much and have a great night all right You're thanks you. you too bye okay well thank you so much katie yeah, for just sharing so much with us and we didn't even get to your amazing science but we can plug your paper everybody paper sh- yeah everybody should read about the uh, internal structure of uh, continental sphere yeah and where would we read about that uh, it is published in Tectonal Physics. Tectonal Physics. Invited review, baby. Yeah, very classy. We're going to learn all about continents. I know. They are really important because yeah. we live here. They are the future. Well, and... The past. The past. <laughs> and the present. And the present. Cool. Cool. <laughs> We're not fish. Got it. <laughs> awesome. Well, you've been fantastic, and um, I just cannot thank you enough for being the first the, the you it's know only sacrificial lamb from here you guys yeah so uh and if you have questions for us um if you have more questions for katie we can try and get her back please do contact us and um i will try to get those questions on air and answered by some brilliant and extraordinary female <laughs> scientist like katie okay thanks so much katie thank you yay good job tough talk stuff the intro to that anyway. I know. Well, man, you gotta let me know. <laughs> I'm too smart. <laughs> or not smart enough. Well, yeah. <laughs> Spit it as you weigh. Nothing but excitement here in the podcast. <laughs>